Bibles with me to the 100th Psalm. It's the psalm that was put to words that we just sang by a man named William Keith. And uh, William Keith in reading the 100th Psalm put it in an English form of poetry for us, did an excellent job with that. And oftentimes when, when people sing that, I don't know if you've heard this, they refer to the old hundredth. And that comes from the Geneva Psalter. And so when you sing the old hundredth, which is actually the tune to that song, but it's always compiled with this 100th Psalm. And uh, we'll sing part of that at the end, and hopefully it will make even more sense to you. During this month of November, uh, I'd like to focus our attention on Thanksgiving, since that seems very natural for this month. I want to encourage us with regard to the importance of developing a thankful heart and really understanding the value of that and the necessity of that. And I'd like to do so by pointing our attention to some psalms of thanksgiving from the Psalter. But to do so, uh, we'll probably look at a couple of different psalms, uh, but I think I need just a, a little word of explanation about the psalms. When you open to that middle book in your Bible called Psalms, the divisions of the book are divinely inspired. That's not true of, say, 1 Corinthians, and we'll say turn to chapter 9 and verse whatever. The chapters and verse distinctions of 1 Corinthians were added after it was written, just for the sake of getting around in the book, so we all know where we're looking. But when you open the Psalter, and we, for instance, will read the 100th Psalm, that is a unit by itself. So when we refer to the Psalms, we don't refer to them as chapters. Psalm chapter 89, Psalm chapter 110. Uh, some people do. Don't berate them for that and show your ex uh, superior knowledge, right? Uh, I'm just helping all of us to think in terms of the 100th Psalm can stand on its own. It was an individual composition under the inspiration of God. However, that doesn't mean that the Psalms are not arranged thematically. We don't sing out of the hymn book anymore. Maybe you do, just to help visually, or you like to follow the notation. But if you were to take our hymnal and open it up, you would know that it is arranged thematically. So you have these vertical songs of worship in the beginning, and we sang some of those this morning. Those are the small numbers. And then you have songs that speak of maybe Christ's substitution, and those are all arranged together, and, and so forth, as you can actually open up that hymnal and go right through certain themes. And, and the, the book of Psalms is very much that way because it is a hymnal. In fact, I think it's helpful to think in these terms, the Psalms, is, what was Jesus' hymnal? These were sung by the Lord's people. And he no doubt would have known all of these psalms. And this is what they sang when they came together as the Lord's people. And so the, the hundredth psalm is actually a part of a larger group of psalms that sometimes are referred to as enthronement psalms. 
And it means there are psalms that are speaking of, of the ultimate king, the king that was promised to the line of David, the, the Messiah, that he is coming. And they are psalms that are anticipating that and saying this is what it will be like when he reigns. And let me show you that. Look at the 93rd psalm. And just look at how this begins. Psalm 93, verse 1, the Lord, what? Reigns. God is king. He's robed in majesty. Look at Psalm 95. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great what? A great king. You see, it's this idea of God himself as the great king. Look at Psalm 96 and verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord, what? <clears throat> reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns. And so you have all these enthronement psalms that speak of God as a great king who will reign. And when you come to that 100th psalm, it's like now a capstone is being placed upon that. And what it's saying is this isn't true only for God's people, Israel, as it was in the Old Testament. But this is something that all the earth should recognize. God is a great king. And let's worship him. And so note that as we read this 100th Psalm, it's, it's kind of like a, a doxology that, that just caps off this section. So notice with me Psalm 100. The title for this Psalm is a Psalm for giving thanks. It's the only Psalm that is titled that way. Um, even though the 118th Psalm uses the term thanks more often than this, this is the only one that gets that title. But let's read it with that in mind and noting that this is a doxology of thanks to God the King. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray and ask God to help us really understand what we are implored to do in this passage and that he would give us grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law this morning, to know that you are worthy of our joyful and thankful praise. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
When you read this psalm, there are some things that really should jump out at you immediately. One of those are the imperatives. Imperatives are commands. And whenever God gives commands in the Bible, our ears should always perk up because then it's very clear what the Lord is is asking us to do or imploring us to do. There are seven different imperatives in this short psalm. If we were to note them, they would be verse 1, make, verse 2, serve, verse 3, come, uh, verse 2, come, verse 3, know or acknowledge, verse 4, enter, verse 4, give, uh, verse 4, bless. And so you have these imperatives where, where God is saying, here's what, what, what God's people should do, and it's actually the, the people themselves, God's people, giving testimony to this. And it's saying, everybody, let's make a noise, let's, let's come, let's enter, let's praise, let's give thanks. And so really verses 1 and 2 and verse 4 that, that encompass the majority of those imperatives are what we, would, what we would recognize as calls to worship. And again, it's like an assembly like this, and everybody's saying, let's, let's go worship the king, and here's how we'll do this. But then you have verse 3 and verse 5, and those two verses are really explaining to us why we should worship. Verse 3 is telling us something that we must acknowledge about God, that when we truly acknowledge this, it's easy for us to do verse 1 and 2. And verse 5 is saying, here's something else about God that is true, and when we really think about this and acknowledge this, it's easy to do what is said in verse 4. And so the psalm is laid out as, a testimony of God's people. This is something that was sung in an instructive way, telling everybody to recognize this about God. And here's an appropriate response. Make a noise, a joyful noise. Come, enter, thank, bless. And so really, I think you could sum up the psalm in this way. This is a psalm for giving thanks. And really, you could say that this is a psalm that tells all people are urged to worship God joyfully and with thanksgiving. This is the instruction for us in Psalm 100. What I want to do today is just focus on those two things, joyful worship and thankful worship, and see how the psalm tells us these are appropriate. This is what we should be doing. The first of these I want to recognize is this, that we are to worship God joyfully. Look again at verse 1. You see the word joyful in verse 1? Look at verse 2. You see the word glad in verse 2? You see at the end of the verse a a word that says sing? These are all terms that we would describe, right, as as joy, as, as being filled with gladness. And so it's saying when you, when you come to worship God, there should be this gladness of heart. Why is that the case? Why should we be glad to worship God today? 
Well, I want to begin with the reasons in verse 3. There are three of them. He begins in verse 3 and says, Worship God with gladness, verses 1 and 2, because, verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. What are some reasons for joyful worship of God? The first is this, we should worship God joyfully because of His exclusive position. The psalmist here says that we are to know the Lord, and he doesn't mean know Him as in drawing in close communion with Him. The term know here simply means to acknowledge something that is true. Just just concede this, grant this fact. Know that the Lord, and what do you notice that's different about the word Lord in your Bible? You see that? What do you notice that's different about that? It's all capital letters. Do you know why that's the case? The the translators of uh, the English Standard Version and other good English versions have have done that intentionally to let us know that there's a word under there that's very important. Uh, Sometimes this word, people pronounce it as Jehovah. We're not exactly sure how to pronounce it because it's actually only four consonants in Hebrew. And we're not sure what the vowels are. But there's just four consonants. And, and modern-day scholarship, and I, I would tend to agree, says that, that really it was probably more pronounced something like Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, and they kind of figured out how to pronounce those with vowels. And, and he says, know that Yahweh, who is this Yahweh? Well, this is actually the name that God told his people Israel to call him. When he met with Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said, when I go to Egypt to deliver these slaves, and and they ask me, who sent you? What am I to say to them? And the Lord responded to Moses and said, tell them, I am has sent me, has sent you to them. And that really was the term Yahweh. And God says, this is my recognition among my people as the God of Israel, Yahweh. So when the psalmist writes this, he says, we should be acknowledging that Yahweh, He really alone is what? Is God. This is the one true God. There are no other gods. So worship Him because Any worship of anything else is worship of a false God. He holds this exclusive position. There is none other like him. He alone is God. And so the imperative here is is acknowledge, and it signifies acknowledge that he is God alone, and so worship him. Now, in our context, are you a worshiper of the true God? What is worship? What worship is, it means means to speak or to say something. To speak of something's worth. And worship is simply my acknowledgement of the worth of something, or in this case, particularly someone. So you might, in a sense, and and, and don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying you, you bow down to your car, right? 
but you might worship your car in a sense that you say, man, I bought this car, and this car is awesome. You wouldn't believe the zero to 60 in this thing, if that's your kind of thing in a car. Or you wouldn't believe the gas mileage I get in this thing, which those two things don't go together, right? But, but what you would be doing with people around you is you would be speaking the praises of this car, and in a sense you're worshiping. Again, I'm not saying that that's in a bad way, but, but this is what worship means. And so what we have here is the psalmist saying, listen, when it comes to the value and the praise of someone, there's only one being of greatest value. No rivals. Know that that Yahweh, he alone holds this position of, of God, supreme value. Now, you would come here today and you would say, of course I worship this God. That's why I come here today. We sing these praises. We sing about God and what he has done. But I don't think we often recognize the rival gods of our 21st century. In, in ancient times, it was kind of easy to see that, okay, the other people of the other lands, they had a particular God that they even made an idol of and bowed down to, the Baals or Chemosh or whatever the case may be. But we may not have particular names for gods of the 21st century, but we often do value things above the one true God. Let me give you an example. One of the gods of our 21st century is the God of security. I must be secure. Physically, financially, Therefore, I will expend any effort, and I give a great deal of time and concentration about keeping myself secure. Do you realize there might be times where the God who is of ultimate value actually says, I don't want you to be secure, just for security itself. You might need to step out into insecurity in order to realize that I am God. Does that make sense? But in our 21st century, security is everything. So I, so I amass all the, the, the stuff of life to insulate me from trouble. I have every kind of insurance you can imagine to keep me from catastrophe. And I'm not saying insurance is bad. Don't misunderstand me. But you just think about how often you think about security and how often that is even sold to you as something that is of utmost importance. And congruence with this is the God of comfort. Well, I must be happy. So therefore, I must have all of these comforts provided for me and, and I should never deprive myself of any kind of, of comfort because that's really what life is all about, to make me comfortable, and I hold that of highest value. So I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I spend a lot of time planning for it. And that's where the value is. And, and the Bible just comes to us and says, listen, that is a false God, and it's going to deprive you of true joy. Because you can't make yourself comfortable enough. 
and you can't keep yourself secure enough. And you're living at a very low level because you're worshiping a very small God. And this psalm comes back and says, we must begin by acknowledging the Lord, He alone is of ultimate value. He alone is God. And all of my hope, all of my security is wrapped up in Him. Why should we joyfully worship God? Because he holds this exclusive position as God alone, and therefore all of our hope and security and comfort are found in him alone. The second reason we are to worship God joyfully, the first is he holds this exclusive position. He is God. But look at the next line. Here's what is true about this only God. It is he who what? Who what? Made us. What's he talking about? Who made you? Do you know this little catechism? We used to do this with our kids. It was kind of a little catechism that you taught them the truths of the Bible, and it was a question and answer thing. And we would give them this question, who made you? God made me is the answer for that. That's exactly what it's saying here. This only God, he is the creator. Why are we to joyfully worship him? Because he is our maker. Apart from him, none of us are here. He is the one that started it all, that dreamed creation and spoke it into existence. He's our creator. He made us. Now, when you make something, what does that mean? When I was a kid, I used to play with Legos. Uh, who am I kidding? I still like to play with Legos, all right? Um, I do. My kids were little. It was a great excuse to get down and, you know. Then we'd have those fights. No, I think I want that. You want that. Oh, no, I'm the adult here. No, okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> and uh, when I was a kid, ask my mom this. She'll tell you. I used to have this huge bag of Legos. And uh, this was the time before they actually gave you all the directions and said, put this together and it looks like this. You actually had to be creative and put those things together in a way that made something. And uh, I made this helicopter that I was really proud of. And uh, it you know, spun, and the landing gear went up and down, and it had a little thing on the back. And I remember playing with my, my friend one day with that helicopter, and we're playing Legos. And he's like, oh, that's a really cool helicopter. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I made it. And then I said, but you know what? And I crunched it. And I broke it to pieces. And he was like, why would you do that? And I said, I, I made it. Why not? I can do that. I'm going to make it again. Because creation demonstrates what? Ownership. And this is what it's saying. You, you ought to acknowledge God alone and acknowledge him in joyful worship. Why? He made you. Without him, none of us are here. But not only did he make us, look at the end of verse 3. Now you have this collective group. Remember, these are the Lord's people singing this, and it says, we are his people. We are like sheep of his pasture. Joyfully worship God, not only because he's our creator, but because he's our redeemer. 
When the children of Israel sang this and said, we are his people, they're thinking, God made us a people. He brought us out of Egypt and established us as a nation. And we are his people because he has redeemed us. This is true of New Testament believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we, we hear these words. What don't you know that you are not your own You are bought with a what? With a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body because God has purchased you. And this is the reason to joyfully worship God. He alone is God. There is none other like Him. He is the Creator God. He is our Redeemer God. And what I find fascinating is this. Just those two concepts, He alone is God, Creator and Redeemer, should solicit our worship. But do you realize that that is the consummation of all of history? Let me show you this. We're in the middle of your Bible. Go to the end of your Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Because in the fourth chapter of the book of the Revelation, we have a picture of heaven, the throne room of God, this great king. Like, like Psalm 100 is talking about a great king. And here now we're, we're, we're in his throne room in heaven, as it were, and we have this scene. Revelation 4 And we read of these creatures around the throne, these angels and what they're singing. But but look at this particular verse that they're singing. Look at Revelation 4 and verse 11. Here is what these, these human beings and angelic beings are saying around the throne of God. Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, what? created all things and by your will they existed and were created let me let me ask you what is the worship of heaven based upon god is creator there is no other and we get this glimpse into the throne room of heaven and what it tells us is actually all of history is headed this direction but not only that look at the fifth chapter In chapter 5 of Revelation, we're still in the throne room of heaven, but now you have others that that enter the song, as it were, and and look at what they say according to verse 9. It says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Christ as the Lamb of God, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you what? Ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now it's not just the Jewish nation, it's all nations that God has sent forth his powerful gospel to redeem people from the ends of the earth. That they would stand in heaven one day and joyfully worship God their redeemer. And so when you go back to the 100th Psalm, it's it's like the Lord's people in Old Testament times are, are marching in worship to Jerusalem and they're seeing the end of all things and they're saying, let all the nations come and worship our Creator and Redeemer. Now, if we go back to Psalm 100, I want us to note now in these first two verses the ways that we are to joyfully worship God. If verse 3 gives us the why, as it were, 
Verses 1 and 2 give us the ways. And just look at the terms. Make a joyful what? Okay, when we say that, we, we kind of say that tongue-in-cheek sometimes, don't we? Well, I can't really sing very well, but I can make a joyful noise. And that's fine. Uh, you just don't say, well, because I can't sing very well, I don't sing in church. Don't do that, right? Um, we are all to praise God. Literally, though, the word here means to shout. It, it, it means my heart is so full of these truths about God that it like overflows out of my mouth. And I shout to God. And notice it's directed, who should shout to God? All the earth. No one's excluded from this. This is rightful praise by everything that God has made. I was trying to think in my mind, where do we find instances in our culture where people are shouting in exuberant praise? Do you know where we find that? We find it at Fenway Park or Gillette Stadium or TD Garden. And you have this eruption of, of exhilaration. There's nothing wrong with being a sports fan. I watch sports, believe it or not. But, but let's just try to think in terms of, of if those things thrill our soul, do we ever have that same kind of sense when we come to worship? Because I, I'm not just exuberant over the, the amazing things these athletes do made in God's image. But I am exuberant over the one whose image they bear. And of his greatness and his goodness. And I can't wait to come with God's people to make a noise and shout to him. We are to make a noise. We are to, to raise a cry, as it were, and cause everyone else to do the same. Listen, when you sing in the song service... Do you sing out enough so that the people in front of you say, man, I want to sing too? It really has that effect. I want to lift my voice too and add it to this throng. We are to make a joyful noise. We are to, according to verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. The term really means to worship. We think service as, as work. Which, which worship is, here it's probably referring to the temple, and when priests went to the temple, they worshiped the Lord, but they did so through service. They were constantly working and sacrificing and perfuming and, and, and cleansing and all these kinds of things. And, and this is the idea that, that we worship God joyfully even in our service, how we work and how we praise. And also... We are to come, the end of verse 2, come into his presence with singing. And all I want to say about that is that corporate worship is vital. What you do this morning in this hour and a half that we have together isn't trivial, isn't optional. It's vital. 
especially that kind of corporate worship and gathering with singing praise to God, it is vital because we must have this attitude that is noted. It's a joyful noise. It's with gladness and it's with singing. Our worship of God should be driven by joy. Joyless worship is an insult to God. Don't you know that? It's Christmas time. And somebody has bought you a nice gift. And they bring this gift to you and they say, here. I know it's what you wanted. Here, go ahead, open it. Yeah. Yeah. What's your response? Really, I really don't want it. <laughs> right? I don't need it. Just, just keep it. Well, how do you think the Lord feels when we gather on the Lord's Day in worship and we're like, well, here we go. You know, I've got to bring my kids to church or else they're going to turn out rebels if I don't. We'll sit here through my hour and a half of worship. I've got nothing better to do today. The joy in our worship, we looked at this last week in giving, the joy in our worship is, is the, the reflection of the right attitude of the heart that says, I get to do this. Not I have to do this. I get to do this. And therefore, I can't wait, and I'm excited about it. This is the attitude of worship. And notice that it is, it is singing to God joyfully based on what I know about God truthfully. It's not just coming into a worship service that, that everything in the service kind of works on me to get me warmed up to an attitude of worship. When we worship together, we're not trying to manufacture an atmosphere that warms you up so you walk away with a good fuzzy feeling. It's that you, God's people, come into God's presence because you know these things about God. He alone is God. He is creator. He's my redeemer. I get to worship him. Now, here's the vehicle through which we do that. These songs that we sing, this prayer that we offer to him, this sitting in attention at his word. And because my heart is willing in that, there's a joy in my countenance when I do that. All people are urged to worship God joyfully in this way, primarily because of his greatness. This is what we're talking about in verse 3. It's God is great, worship him. And this speaks to God's transcendence. All of human history, human beings have been enamored with this idea, there must be something greater than myself. Recently, in our 21st context, people have tried to dismiss that notion. There is no transcendence. Everything is only what you see. I was made from the things you see. I'll go back to the things you see. There is no divine being, divine realm. There is no heaven. There is no home, uh, hell. There's just me. And people living in that kind of dark world However hard they try, they still, in their heart, look for transcendence, something greater than them. 
And when we come to church and we worship God for his greatness, it results in joyful worship. And what it does, it frees me from my self-focus. Because when I take God out of the picture, I'm the biggest thing in life, and all the world should revolve around me. But when we come for worship, we are reminding ourselves, we are exhorting our brothers and sisters in Christ, guess what? It's not all about you. And the sooner you figure that out, the more joyful you'll be. Therefore, all people ought to worship God joyfully. It's what we're made for. And it's where we find our true satisfaction. That means that you ought to gather for worship. Parents, I love you. I'm a parent. I know it's not always easy. But I say this in love. If you want to raise self-focused kids, don't ever worship God. They'll get the picture. God really isn't a big deal. In fact, he's optional. I mean, some days it's okay, but if something else important comes up, all you're doing is you're raising a self-focused child. The world really is about me. What you need is pray to God week by week as you worship with God's people that you are painting before them the glory of God. And there's nothing greater than Him. And we stop everything to acknowledge that because it's right. Worship God joyfully because of His greatness. Secondly, we should worship God thankfully. This is the other part of the psalm, and I'll move quickly. Why should we worship God thankfully? Verse 4 talks about thanksgiving and giving thanks to Him and blessing His name. You'll notice verse 5. What's the first word of verse 5? Four. What does that mean? That's, that's a term of logic, and it's saying this connects with what is previously done. So bless His name because the Lord is what? Is good. He's good. Well, in what ways is He good? Two things, verse 5, his steadfast love endures forever. God is eternally loving. This is a term that often occurs in your Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated as mercy, most commonly in the King James Version, but it's this idea of steadfast love. It's, it's covenant love. It's, it's a love that somebody has, not because of the object and its goodness, but because of my goodness toward the object because I choose to love. That's why it's steadfast because it's not conditioned on anything the other person does. It's simply my love. And it says that God has this steadfast kind of love and it's a love that endures forever. It's eternally loving. In other words, God says of his people, I commit myself to love you forever. Now think about this. God loves you not because you're good, not because I'm good. He loves us because he's good. 
And it's a steadfast kind of love that is unshakable. And when you really get that through your head and into your heart, guess what? You're so thankful. Praise God for this. Thank you, God, for loving me today. And there's nothing I can do to earn more of it or take away from it. It's just because you're good. Not only is God eternally loving, but he is ever faithful. Look at the end of verse 5. His faithfulness to all generations. What does it mean of God's faithfulness? It means God's, God's truthfulness, and it's based uh, on this fact that God has an unchanging nature. He is God, he's unchanging, he's unchangingly good, and that will always be the case. At no point in the future will God change his mind about what is right and what is wrong. He's faithful in all his ways. He's told us what is morally right and what is morally wrong, and that standard will always be. Now, have you ever thought of thanking God for that? You say, well, I don't really know how to think about that. Do you know why we're in the mess we are today? It's because people have said no moral standards are flexible, and I can decide if it's right or wrong by myself. And everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and it creates nothing but chaos and confusion. And God says, but I'm telling you, I am the true God, morally fixed, forever the same, and what was true a thousand years ago will be true a thousand years from now. And you know what that is? It's foundational. It's, it's, it's securing. And God says, I'm faithful to all generations. In other words, the faithfulness of God in your life today is the same faithfulness of God that will be to your grandchildren, God willing. What if God wasn't eternally loving and ever faithful? If these things were not true about God, our lives would be a constant source of contention and fear and anxiety and turmoil. And if that sounds like some people you know, it's probably because they don't know God. So what ways are we to be thankful to God? Here are reasons, verse 5. What, what ways? Look at verse 4. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with Praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, be thankful. Choose to remember God's benevolence. Choose to remember his goodness. What kind of person are you, half empty or half full? Listen, there's a lot of life to think about as half empty. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a fallen world. I'm not saying pie in the sky, don't think about things that are bad. We live in a fallen world. But how often do we choose to neglect the goodness of God? We choose really not to think about the fact that, that God gave you just the right mixture of air this morning so you could breathe. We choose to forget those things because God does them every single day. But when I really think about God's goodness, the right response is thankful praise. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the night's rest. Thank you for bringing the sun up this morning. Thank you that I live in the 21st century and we have indoor plumbing. Thank you. These are all God's good gifts. But it's our choice. Where do we focus? We often focus on what we don't have, what we've missed out on, what has gone wrong. And when we do, we become complaining and bitter, and our hearts are not filled with thankful praise. The psalmist tells us that all people are urged to worship God joyfully and with thanksgiving. That should be the lot of God's people. It is our privilege. There are two ways I want to apply this to us this morning, and we'll be done. Number one, I've hinted at this before, you and I ought to commit to joyful, thankful praise to our great and good God. We need reminders of this. That is why God has designed corporate worship. As soon as you leave here today, all this week, this world in which we live is going to to pounce on you as it were, and they're going to sell you this lie. You're the most important thing in the world. In fact, if you go to Burger King, you can have it your way. In fact, what you need is this new car because it's unlike any other and you'll feel like you're accomplished. What you need is this vacation. And all week long, that's the message of our world because you're moving about with people who that's what they think. There is no God. So I'm in this for everything I can get out of it. And that onslaught hits you day after day after day, and you get worn out like smooth stones in a river. And you need to set aside the Lord's Day to come together with other people and remind ourselves who is really important, who is really valuable. My great creator and redeemer, And it sharpens us that we can keep our edge. And it's the pathway to joy. So fight for it. Fight for joy. Secondly, as we commit to joyful, thankful praise to our great and good God, we should be inviting others in our lives to do the same. Notice this in the text. End of verse 3. Who is singing this song? We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Who's singing the song? God's people. God's people. Yes, we're his people. We're his sheep. He's the great shepherd. But who are we singing to? Verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Do you know what the best testimony is? 
to a world that has forgotten the transcendent God, it's a joyful, thankful worshiper. And as they go about their life with joy and thanksgiving and are excited about God, they're telling the people around them, the nations, come worship him. Come acknowledge him. Give him his place. This is why you were made. Therefore, our hearts must be filled with joyful, thankful worship in God that we can appropriately invite the nations to come. The book of Romans tells us in the first chapter that this is exactly what people fail to do. When they look around and they see the things that God has made, they suppress the truth in those things. And although they should know him as God, they do not acknowledge him as God. Neither are they thankful. And it's upon us as all of God's people to say, come and worship this great God. You can be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Yes, you're like sheep going astray, lost in your sin, but God has done something for you. Because of his love, he has reached out to you and sent his son to take your place. That Through faith in him alone, you would be redeemed and reconciled, that you might be a worshiper. And our hearts must be filled with the joy of that true gospel witness and that true gospel power to transform people groping about in darkness to joyful, willing worshipers of God. By God's grace and with God's help, will he help us as a people, as a church, to live out this hundredth psalm? We're going to close this morning by singing again these words.